You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. What a scene met our eyes when we left the house after the shelling. Our pretty garden was strewn with cannonballs and pieces of broken shells, limbs knocked off the trees, and the grape arbor a perfect wreck. The house had been damaged considerably, several large holes torn through it, both in front and back. While we were deploring the damage that had been done, Lieutenant Eustace returned in breathless haste to say that he had just heard an order from General Lee read on Commerce Street, saying that the women and children must leave the town, as he would destroy it with shell that night rather than let it fall into the hands of the enemy, who were rapidly crossing the river on pontoon bridges. They urged my mother to take her children and fly at once from the town. After resisting until the men, in despair, were almost ready to drag her from her dangerous situation, she finally consented to leave. The wildest confusion now reigned. We left town by way of the old plank road, with batteries of Confederates on both sides. The ground was rough and broken up by the tramping of soldiers and the heavy wagons and artillery that had passed over it, so that it was difficult and tiresome to walk, and the sun got quite warm by this time, and the snow was melting rapidly. The mud was simply indescribable. When we got about two miles from town, we overtook many other refugees. Some were camping by the way, and others were pressing on, some to country houses which were hospitably thrown open to wanderers from home, some to Salem Church, about three miles from Fredericksburg, where there was a large encampment. All was bustle and confusion. I suppose there were several hundred refugees there. Some were cooking outside in genuine gypsy fashion, and those who were infirm or sick were trying to get some rest in the cold, bare church. The leafless trees through which the winter wind sobbed mournfully, the scattered groups seen through the smoke of numerous fires, and the road upon which passed constantly back and forth ambulances and wagons full of wounded soldiers, presented a gloomy and saddening spectacle. Francis Bernard, resident of Fredericksburg. After enduring the Federal artillery bombardment, the civilians remaining in Fredericksburg on December 11th were ordered to evacuate the battered town. The Bernard family fled to Danville, Virginia the following spring. Decades later, Francis, who was a child in 1862, vividly recalled the distressing scenes, quote, as if they had only happened yesterday.
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 231 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We wanted to start this episode with a quote that highlighted the traumatic ordeal the civilian residents of Fredericksburg experienced because in many ways what they went through was unique at this point in the Civil War. The town of Fredericksburg, with a population of 5,000 people, had become a battleground. After two hours of intense federal artillery fire, the town had been knocked to pieces. For several weeks prior to this, the residents of Fredericksburg had been nervously watching for signs of federal intentions. During this period, many people fled their homes and left town, but some returned when an attack no longer seemed imminent and others, those too old or sick or feeble or too stubborn to leave, well, they had stayed. And now, as the Yankee guns began booming on December 11th, everyone scrambled for their basements or even crawled into wells or cisterns trying to find shelter from the storm of shot and shell. In his excellent book on the battle, George Rabel notes how, quote, the bombardment of Fredericksburg seemed to raise the war's barbarity to an ominously higher level. For observers with an apocalyptic turn of mind, the sight of the church steeples poking above the fog and smoke was unnerving, and the outbreak of fires heightened the sense of judgment and doom. End quote. Along Marie's Heights, the Confederates watched the bombardment with horror, fascination, and awe. Observing the shelling from the heights behind the town, Robert E. Lee seethed with indignation. Lee would often call the Federals, those people, and now he declared, Those people delight to destroy the weak and those who can make no defense. It just suits them. It's probably safe to assume that no one within earshot of that remark would have pointed out to Lee that his decision to post Barksdale's men right in Fredericksburg had directly contributed to this tragic turn of events. Um, yeah, probably not. In any case, as the Federal guns fell silent around 2.30 that afternoon, traumatized civilians emerged from their hiding places and fled their ruined town. Watching these refugees escaping from Fredericksburg only intensified Confederate hatred against the Yankees. Terrified men, women, and children rode through the rebel lines in carts or wagons or hurried along on foot toward safety. The southern soldiers were upset by the sight of elderly people, many frail and ill, finally driven from their homes, staggering along, sometimes with heavy bundles. But it was the women and young children, with little more than the proverbial clothes on their backs, that tore at the hearts of the rebel troops who witnessed the sad exodus from Fredericksburg. One observer described the small children with, quote, their little blue feet treading painfully the frozen ground, blindly following their poor mothers, who knew as little as themselves where to seek food and shelter. At the Battle of Fredericksburg, the human cost and suffering wasn't limited to just the soldiers, and witnessing the sad evidence of this up close, more than one rebel echoed Robert E. Lee's condemnation of the despicable Yankees. 
They said it was just like those black-hearted villains to shell a town filled with helpless women and children. Distressed and troubled by the heart-rending scenes that played out before them, many a Confederate soldier vowed to exact revenge for such outrages. The shells exploded in and over the town, creating the greatest consternation among the people. The deafening roar of cannon and bursting shells, falling walls and chimneys, brick and timbers flying through the air, houses set on fire, the smoke adding to the already heavy fog, the bursting of flames through housetops, made a scene which has no parallel in history. It was appalling and indescribable. During that hail of iron and brick, I believe I can say that there was not a square yard in the city which was not struck by a missile of some kind. Under cover of the bombardment, Burnside undertook to renew his efforts to complete the bridges, but the matchless men of Barksdale's brigade, concealed in their rifle pits along the river bank, poured a volley first, and then a concentrated fire on the workmen, and drove back all who survived their deadly aim. Defeated at every turn, the Federal commander abandoned his bridges for the time and began to cross in boats. He directed a destructive rifle fire against the Mississippians along the river bank and also against those in the city. Colonel Fieser continued to dispute this passage, and many of the boats were forced to return to remove their dead and get others to take their places. The enemy soon formed line and dashed at the Mississippians, determined to drive them from their rifle pits and other places of shelter. Barksdale's brigade watched them from their hiding places and awaited their near approach. Suddenly, when within 75 yards of our line, as if by common impulse, a volley rang out from the rifle pits on the cold air, which sounded almost like one gun, and hundreds fell dead in their tracks. The front line of the enemy, paralyzed and dismayed by the shock, fell back in confusion. In the meantime, the Mississippians were firing on them as they ran. It was a dreadful slaughter, which might have been considered a retaliation for the dreadful bombardment of two hours before. Quickly, the second line advanced, firing as they came, and was met by a deadly aim from the Confederates. The column halted in front of Barksdale's men when the third line rushed to their support and charged headlong into the city. The Mississippians began to retire slowly, fighting as they retreated. Private James M. Dinkins, 18th Mississippi Infantry, Barksdale's Brigade. We were no nearer crossing than in the morning, and something had to be done. Burnside called for volunteers to charge over in pontoon boats and drive the rebel sharpshooters from the bank of the river, and our brigade commander, Colonel Norman Hall, offered the services of our brigade. Permission was granted, and it was planned that the boats would be ready on the shore, and the troops given the signal should rush down to the bank of the river, jump into the boats, and pull quickly across and charge up the bank on the other side. It was a desperate game. After getting into the boat, Lieutenant Leander F. Alley said to me, Murphy, take that oar, which I did, and we soon had the boat across on the other side, where she grounded a few feet from the shore. We jumped out and waded to the land. The other boats had got there first, had charged up the bank, and had driven out the rebel sharpshooters, 
and taken with the wounded about twenty prisoners, who were brought back in the first boats that returned after we got across and before the pontoon bridge was finished. But now that the sharpshooters were driven away from the bank, our engineers soon had the bridge completed, and the troops in reserve were beginning to move across it. We lay under the bank of the city, and as soon as the troops began to cross, we were ordered forward. Our company formed in two pl platoons of about thirty men each at the lower end of a street and began to advance up the street. As soon as we came within sight of the rebels, who were concealed in every house and behind every fence, they opened a terrible fire on us at short range, and our men began dropping at every point, those struck in the vital parts dropping without a sound, but those wounded otherwise would cry out with pain as they fell or limped to the rear. But despite the terrible fire, we pressed on up the street. Where men fell and left a vacant place, other men stepped into their places, and although death stared us in the face, there was not a man who faltered. We had now arrived at the corner of a cross street called Caroline Street, and I, being on the left flank of the company, turned to look down the street to see if anything could be seen to fire at, and bringing my gun to the ready at the same time. At that moment I felt a sharp, stinging pain on the right side of my face, and presto, I knew no more. When I came to, I was lying on the ground where I had fallen, and the company had advanced a short distance up the street. The balls were still flying thick around me, and I realized I was wounded. Private Josiah F. Murphy, 20th Massachusetts Infantry, Hall's Brigade In last week's episode, we talked about how, when the big federal bombardment of Fredericksburg stopped about 2.30 that afternoon, the engineers had ventured out on the bridges at the upper and middle crossings once again, cautiously optimistic the shelling had succeeded. But Barksdale's rebels opened fire again almost immediately. After the engineers scrambled back to safety once more, the Army of the Potomac's artillery chief, Brigadier General Henry Hunt, brought an idea to Ambrose Burnside. It was a novel plan that had apparently been first proposed by the engineers. Hunt suggested to Burnside that the army needed to secure the far bank of the river before the engineers would be able to complete their task and finish the bridges. Hunt recommended that some infantry cross the Rappahannock in pontoons and establish bridgeheads on the far shore. Now, you need to understand that no one in the United States Army had ever considered, practiced, or executed such a maneuver under fire before, and so Burnside hesitated to approve such an unprecedented, audacious scheme. But in the end, he told Hunt that if volunteers could be found, he would agree to it. Well, Hunt went immediately to the nearest Union infantry at hand. Colonel Norman Hall offered up his brigade to make the river assault, apparently with very little arm twisting from Hunt. Hall volunteered his own 7th Michigan to lead the charge. Since Hall had been elevated to brigade command, the regiment was actually led on December 11th by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Baxter. 
With the 7th Michigan set to go at the upper crossing, Burnside warmed to the idea of the assault, and he ordered the 89th New York to launch a similar operation just downriver at the lower end of Fredericksburg to secure the middle crossing. Hunt had the Union artillery shell Fredericksburg once more to get the rebel infantry to keep their heads down. This barrage had a profound impact on elements of the 8th Florida, which had been sent into town to reinforce Barksdale's Mississippians. Barksdale had actually divided the Floridians and sent detachments to guard his flanks above and below Fredericksburg. Without benefit of rifle pits, houses, and other buildings for cover, the Floridians felt exposed and vulnerable, and so Hunt's artillery had a decisive impact on the 8th Florida just when it mattered most, severely demoralizing those men just before the Federal infantry started across the river. One hundred volunteers from the 89th New York filled four pontoons at the middle crossing and shoved off. Engineers rode furiously to cross the Rappahannock as quickly as possible. Sporadic Confederate musket fire peppered the boats, but at the midpoint of the crossing, the rebel musketry suddenly tapered off. That's because the lip of the river bank prevented the defenders from seeing the Yankees as they got closer to the shoreline. As the New Yorkers landed, they sprinted toward the Confederate-held buildings, and the rebels hastily retreated up the hill to Caroline Street. The Mississippians successfully escaped, but the unhappy detachment of the 8th Florida here at the lower end of the town was captured wholesale. The New Yorkers had executed their crossing and landing flawlessly. The 7th Michigan wasn't so fortunate. The infantrymen crowded into the pontoons at the upper crossing as soon as they heard the Union artillery cease firing. However, the engineers had become gun-shy after so much exposure to the Confederate musketry, and some of them panicked and abandoned the boats. This created a great deal of confusion. Some of the engineers in a couple of the boats stayed put, and those pontoons promptly launched. Others were delayed while the exasperated infantry corralled the reluctant engineers to man the oars. Still others decided to shove off without the engineers. The result was that half a dozen boats plowed toward the far shore in a ragged, uneven line. The Mississippians here opened a deadly fire upon the targets to their front. In the boats, Lieutenant Colonel Baxter was wounded near midstream with a bullet through his lung. Major Thomas J. Hunt took command and pressed on. As at the middle crossing, the rebel fire here also trailed off after a certain point, as the bluffs on the Fredericksburg side of the river blocked the Confederates' view. This allowed the disorganized Michigan soldiers to reach the rebel side of the Rappahannock. Once his men had gained the far shore, an angry Major Hunt gave the black flag order, that is, no quarter would be offered, no prisoners taken. One Wolverine, though, later said, quote, For humanity's sake, we did not obey. There's some evidence, however, that not all the Michigan soldiers disobeyed Hunt's black flag order, and as the Federals rushed into the nearest enemy-held houses and buildings, they killed a number of the rebels as the rest fled. Some 30 Confederates were taken prisoner here, though. 
The attack had been an extraordinary achievement. The Union Army had executed the first successful riverine crossing, or shore-to-shore crossing, in its history. It also established the first successful beachhead under fire in U.S. military history. With the far banks secured, the 50th New York Engineers and 15th New York Engineers completed the bridges at the upper and middle crossings. Reinforcements quickly crowded the bridgeheads, necessitating a push deeper into Fredericksburg so the Federals could secure their foothold and gain some elbow room for the deployment of the growing number of Federal troops arriving on that side of the river. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In his book on the Battle of Fredericksburg, Frank O'Reilly writes, quote, William Barksdale had fulfilled his mission. He had delayed the Union advance for the better part of a day, ensuring that most of Lee's army would be in position before Burnside could even cross the river in force. The Mississippians could withdraw content, but their commander had other ideas. Barksdale saw an opportunity to further hinder and embarrass the Union advance. He decided to defend the city and fight through the streets of the old town. Around the upper crossing, Federal soldiers expanding their bridgehead ran into severe resistance from Barksdale's Mississippians. Confederates who were concealed in houses and alleyways blistered them with surprise fire at devastatingly close range. The 7th Michigan became pinned down in a blind alleyway to the left of Hawk Street. The 19th Massachusetts, another regiment in Hall's Brigade, managed to penetrate all the way to Caroline Street before a ferocious rebel counterattack by the fresh 13th Mississippi drove them back in disorder. Division Commander Oliver Otis Howard feared that his bridgehead might collapse, so he ordered the 20th Massachusetts to spearhead a drive directly up Hawk Street. The 20th was one of the so-called Harvard regiments because of the number of alumni from that school in its ranks. But in the growing darkness and deepening shadows, Confederates ambushed the 20th Massachusetts as it reached Caroline Street. Rebel fire ringed the intersection, and the Federals suffered terribly, losing one-third of their strength in a matter of minutes. The regiment suffered a staggering 97 casualties, advancing 50 yards, 
but the furious rebel musketry directed at the 20th Massachusetts allowed the rallied 19th Massachusetts to advance once again and reoccupy the houses along Caroline Street. At that, the Mississippians, satisfied that they had done all they could at that spot, withdrew farther back into the town in the deepening darkness. The Confederates posted a small rear guard under Lieutenant Lane Brandon of the 21st Mississippi to cover their withdrawal from Princess Anne Street. Brandon had strict orders to keep the fighting from flaring up again, but then he learned that the company from the 20th Massachusetts opposite him was commanded by Captain Henry Abbott, a former classmate of Brandon's at Harvard Law School. Taking Abbott's presence as a personal insult, the rebel lieutenant attacked the nearby group of Yankees. Colonel Benjamin Humphreys, commander of the 21st Mississippi, feared Brandon's rash action might provoke another full-scale firefight, so Humphreys ordered him to disengage, but the reckless lieutenant refused and was arrested. Another rebel officer said, quote, He lost his head completely. He refused to retire before Abbott. He fought him fiercely and was actually driving him back. In this, he was violating orders and breaking our plan of battle. He was put under arrest, and his subaltern brought the command out of town. Meanwhile, Colonel Joshua Owen's Philadelphia Brigade attempted to penetrate the center of Fredericksburg. Two regiments sidestepped the battle on Hawk Street and made their way down Sophia Street. They surprised a couple of enemy detachments, then surged into the heart of town at George Street, but the Confederates brought them to a halt there by laying down a deadly crossfire from St. George's Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church. Barksdale's superior, Division Commander Lafayette McClaws, ordered the Mississippians to withdraw from Fredericksburg, but Barksdale ignored the order and continued to battle the Yankees block by block house by house. Colonel Humphreys later tried to excuse Barksdale's obstinacy by explaining that, because of the Federal artillery, the Mississippians couldn't retreat because they, quote, could not safely attempt it until dark, end quote. When he realized that Barksdale had ignored his instructions, McClaws sent a second order, by that time, though, Barksdale felt he'd made his point and safely withdrew his brigade from Fredericksburg under cover of darkness around 7 p.m. The stubborn and combative brigade commander had held up the Federal advance for close to 14 hours and thoroughly wrecked Ambrose Burnside's plans for a quick crossing of the river. Barksdale's 1,500 men had battled 3,000 Federals to a standstill and bought the necessary time for Robert E. Lee to concentrate his full might on the hills ringing Fredericksburg. The Confederate First Corps commander, James Longstreet, later attributed the rebels' ultimate success at the Battle of Fredericksburg to Barksdale's stand, saying that, quote, a more gallant and worthy service is rarely accomplished by so small a force, end quote. And so, although Burnside was finally across the Rappahannock, the seeds of Confederate victory had already been sown.
troops crossing all day long. Fredericksburg given up to pillage and destruction. Boys came into our place loaded with silver pitchers, silver spoons, silver lamps, etc. Great three-story brick houses, furnished magnificently, were broken into and their contents scattered over the floors and trampled on by the muddy feet of soldiers. Closets of the very finest china were broken into and their contents smashed onto the floor and stomped to pieces. Finest cut glass goblets were hurled at nice plate glass windows. Beautifully embroidered window curtains torn down. Pianos piled in the street and burned, or soldiers would get on top of them and dance and kick the keyboard and internal machinery all to pieces. Wine cellars broken into, and the soldiers drinking all they could. Boys go to a barrel of flour and take a pailful and use enough to make one batch of pancakes and then pour the rest in the street. Everything turned upside down. The soldiers seemed to delight in destroying everything. Major Francis E. Pierce, 108th New York Infantry, Palmer's Brigade. Early this morning, our division marched up the cut and filed off into the principal street to the right. Here we stacked arms and the men were dismissed. They immediately made a dash for the houses and ransacked them from cellar to garret. Very soon the streets were filled with a motley crowd of men some of them dressed in women's clothes, others with tall silk hats, curiously conspicuous where nothing but caps are worn. Many brought out sofas, chairs, etc., which were planted in the middle of the street, and the men proceeded to take their ease. Some carried paintings. One man had a fine stuffed alligator, and most of them had something. It was curious to observe these men upon the eve of a tremendous battle, rid themselves of all anxiety by plunging into this boisterous sport. No attempt was made by the officers to interfere, and thus the men's minds were distracted until summoned to fall in to storm the heights. Lieutenant Josiah M. Favel, 57th New York, Zook's Brigade. Although the seeds of ultimate Confederate victory at the Battle of Fredericksburg had already been sown in Barksdale's day-long defensive stand, that assessment wasn't readily apparent to Ambrose Burnside. His plans may have hit a snag, but he was still determined to make every effort to gain victory now that he had committed his army to crossing the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. With his plans to use speed and surprise having been derailed by Barksdale, Ambrose Burnside now saw no reason for haste, and so the Federal commander took his time concentrating his full strength against the Confederates on the opposite side of the river. He spent Friday, December 12th, funneling troops across the Rappahannock and arranging them in the streets of the town and on the floodplain just to the south. In one of the most shameful episodes of the war, Union soldiers used this calm before the storm as an opportunity to thoroughly ransack occupied Fredericksburg. Although some officers, such as 2nd Corps Commander Darius Couch, made an effort to stop the wholesale looting of the town, it had little effect since many other officers turned a blind eye to the stealing and destruction. 
Soldiers plundered everything and anything, and what they couldn't carry away, they destroyed. A disgusted Federal reported, quote, Friday was spent pillaging Fredericksburg, done in a manner of the most Gothic of the Goths or hungriest of the Huns. There is, of course, no excuse for such outrageous, awful behavior, but in an effort to explain it, Frank O'Reilly writes, quote, The wanton destruction revealed the Federal soldiers' pent-up fear and frustration. Confederate reckoning awaited them just beyond the city, and there was nothing they could do to avoid it, so they took out their anger on Fredericksburg. End quote. Not one building in Fredericksburg remained untouched. Even family Bibles were stolen and communion sets taken from churches. The Army of the Potomac's Provo Marshal, Brigadier General Marcina Patrick, recalled, quote, When I went into town, a horrible sight presented itself. The soldiers were sacking the town. Every house and store was being gutted. Men with all sorts of utensils and furniture, eatables and drinkables and wearables were being carried off. End quote. Patrick had no hope of stopping the looting with the small number of troops under his command. The best he could do was to place guards at the bridges to prevent men from taking their loot back to their encampments. Despite the efforts of a handful of officers like Patrick, the Yankee soldiers stole whatever they could carry and wrecked everything else. Arthur Lumley, an artist for a popular weekly publication, Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, sketched the Federal troops looting Fredericksburg, but the paper ultimately refused to publish the graphic scene for fear of the demoralizing effect it might have on the northern home front. On the back of his drawing, the disgusted Lumley had scribbled, This night the city was in the wildest confusion, houses burned down, furniture scattered in the streets, men pillaging in all directions, a fit scene for the French Revolution, and a disgrace to the Union Army. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock by Francis A. O'Reilly. Um, Frank Riley's book is just excellent. It's one of the finest Civil War battle studies you'll come across. The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock, and last week's book recommendation, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, by George Rabel, are really the two must-have go-to books for your Civil War library for anyone interested in the battle. And that's all I've got to say about that. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, uh, with this episode's post, we'll put up that sketch by Arthur Lumley that didn't make it into Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. It's really something, so be sure to check it out. 
Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. And sometimes we actually do share some interesting stuff on social media. For example, if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, you were among the very first to find out about the rare, perhaps unprecedented, Tuesday release of the last episode. Um, Yeah, that was kind of odd. But as we said, better late than never, right? Okay, uh, anyway, it's time at the uh, end of the episode where we always thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So, Kurt, Bill, and Joseph, hey, thanks for your support of the podcast. Thanks, guys. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.